Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey, while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. We're in. Hi, B. Hey, Mel. How are you going? Good. Um, I feel like first of all, because we hadn't, we haven't really chatted much off air, but I feel like we need to say this first. Um, I feel like we might have made a mistake on our podcast that just aired around research because both of us. Well, I was aware, but I'd forgotten, to be honest, but that most, if you're in a public hospital system, and I'm sure, I, don't, I can't actually speak for private, you might have been able to have received comments, that healthcare providers have access to their library and so forth, therefore they have access to data, which is epic because it means that they should be able to present you with the evidence that they're talking about. Mm. in conversation um, because they do have it at their fingertips. I've always had it at mine when I've worked in public hospitals, but I saw a few comments on your post being like, oh, what, do we have access to it? Well, because in the last episode, it was all about finding and interpreting research. And one of the big motivators for us was that it's so hard for health professionals to get access to full text, good journal articles. And so we did make a comment that these were really out of reach for regular practitioners But it turns out, and thankfully, there are so many sweet, beautiful midwives who were willing to call us out on our mistake, is that if you're, obviously, if you're studying or working at a university, you have access to full text journal articles. But yes, many public health employed workers, midwives, doctors, anybody who works in a public hospital, and a few people in private hospitals were saying they also had access to full text journal articles through their, their workplace library Mm. some people were saying the issue was that they had to log in and use it at work because it only worked on certain computers and that could be a massive barrier because you know when you're turning up at seven for your shift and then working a full shift and potentially have to get back home again you don't really think about using your time to go down to the library and work on finding out some research but a lot of midwives didn't even realise they had access to full text journals through that. So, yes, we made an error in assuming that not many people had access to full text articles. If you're listening to this and you're a midwife in a hospital, you probably do. So pursue that with your employer if you don't already know about that. Some people- and your education, like see your mid- midwifery educators because they'll be able to hook you up. The other barrier I want to say here is actually using it because if you haven't done study in a really long time or at all, if you're a hospital trained midwife and you didn't have to complete a university degree to be a midwife, it can be really daunting and, and scary to know how to access it too. So yeah, totally. And I, yeah, I thought we just needed to address that first. So it was episode four, not last episode, because you'll be listening to our epic pelvic floor one as the last one where we're, we're so advanced. We're recording two in, in advance because we know it's going to get hectic for us. Right. Um, that was so, episode yeah. four with Hannah Darlin. And people are loving the resources in the mailing list folders. So all of the topics that we talked about with Hannah and all the websites and everything, I did get emails from people saying, what was that she said? And just get on the mailing list because we send it all out. But today, B, we are talking about 
GBS in pregnancy and how it's managed. And so if you don't know what GBS is, it's called group B strep. And if you're newly pregnant and you're wondering what the heck that is, you will learn everything you need to know on this podcast. But if you're coming to the end of your pregnancy, this will also be super valuable because this is where some of the big decisions have to be made. And I want to put a little disclaimer here at the beginning because when I posted about GBS on social media recently, there was a lot of people saying, but what if, what if your baby has an infection and what if there's signs of infection? And so what I want to say is what B and I will be talking about today is well healthy women and babies who don't have signs that they need some kind of medical treatment. So of course, if you or your baby are unwell and showing signs of a GBS infection of some kind, I would highly recommend getting treatment for that because that's why we have medicine to save us from very severe illness and save us from dying and our babies. So I'm in no way suggesting that you withhold from testing or treating yourself or your baby if you're unwell. What we're talking about here is routine treatment for well, healthy people where whether or not this treatment and screening is actually necessary on a well, healthy population. It's been a big week for you, Mel, hasn't it? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I was called all kinds of names on social media for putting research up. One midwife said that it's midwives like me who give midwifery a bad name. So here we are giving midwifery a bad name by sharing evidence-based information on GBS today. And I'm just going to send you a lot of love around that and her a lot of love around that because for her to be triggered like that, she's obviously had something big happen. So let's get into, I think this is going to be one of the most listened to podcasts because it's so important and it's and it can be um, tricky for people to make these decisions or even know about it. Mm. So let's get into it because I think it's going to be epic. Let's get into it. Okay. So I've made a stack of notes and I've got all my stats ready. Okay. So what is GBS? So GBS is group B strep. It's a bacteria and approximately 20% of the female population globally, all over the world, doesn't matter where you look, approximately 20% of women, if swabbed, would be colonized with group B strep in the bottom third of their vagina. It's considered not to be a high vaginal wall bacteria. It seems to be lower. So 20% are colonized. Now, I think now, what we need to explain here, because this is something I really didn't know. Um, so if you're unfamiliar around what we're actually made up of, we're typically one-tenth human and nine-tenths other bacteria, organisms. That's life. the word. I always hear organisms and think orgasms, and I then I go, like, which one do I say? Organisms. Um, so good bacteria, sometimes bad bacteria. And so that can be really big for people to get their heads around. It's kind of like I remember in the microbiome and them saying, like, we're just a tree and everything is living on and in us and we don't even know about it. Um, and we're just this host for so many different other organisms. So if you're like, hang on, have I got an infection? Am I sick? Am I just walking around with an infection? No. GBS is part of that nine-tenths of non-human cells that are in us that we're just giving life to. And it doesn't, it's not typically, it doesn't cause us harm, right? And there's a lot of different organisms, bacteria included, that live in us 
us all the time that don't cause us harm. So just in case you needed to know that, I think that's a really big thing here to understand. That's right. So all of this bacteria that we have on us fulfills a function and there can be a state of dysbiosis where some are growing faster and more prolifically than others and that can cause a state of disease. And if bacteria gets in one place, or if bacteria belongs in one place and gets into another, for example, E. coli belongs in your bowel, but if it gets in your urinary tract, it'll give you a urinary tract infection. So there's specific, important, necessary bacteria for every part of our body, and if it moves from that part to another, it can cause illness. But for the purpose of GBS, 20%, if you swab 20% of the global population, that many women would be colonised. But that there's a difference between having a colony of GBS and having a GBS infection. So it's very, it's considered very common to have GBS and a GBS infection is considered very uncommon. And when a baby passes through your vagina during birth, approximately 50% of the babies who pass through the vaginal canal of a woman who has GBS, approximately half of those babies will also be colonized. So if you swap every single baby that's been born from a mother who's GBS positive, half of those will also be colonized with GBS, but not half of them will be infected. So they don't get sick. It's just identified on them. So it's part of their tree because then your baby is a tree. You give birth to a tree that has other organisms on them. And when your baby is born out of your vagina, you that's their very first seeding of good, bad, any bacteria that's in there, they get seeded with it. That starts off their microbiome. And just like breast milk starts off the gut microbiome. Anyway, we'll go into the microbiome another time. But basically, colonization, think of colonization as different to infection. What we do have is very inconsistent, poor information about GBS. The studies are all very, very small. And so it's difficult to understand exact stats. So if your baby gets an infection of GBS, there's two types of GBS infection, something called early onset, and that can happen in the first seven days after birth. And anything after that's considered late onset. We're not going to talk about late onset GBS because that's a little bit different and it's kind of out of the scope of midwifery. That's more pediatrics. So we're just going to talk about preventing and screening for early onset GBS infections in babies, but also women can get an infection from GBS. So that's our scope today. Let me first talk about screening a little bit. Yeah. I'm glad you're going there because I was like, people are probably like, what What do we need to know about this? Yeah, what yes. do we need to know? Screening. Screening. So the reason GBS is on our radar as midwives is that firstly, when you first get all of your pregnancy antenatal blood tests done, you'll often also be sent for a urine screen, like a midstream urine. And if anything grows in there and they Sometimes we want to treat you. Sometimes GBS grows in your urine. So this is a question I had a big on social media. So I am going to talk about GBS in urine, not right now. But right from the beginning of your pregnancy, GBS can be on yours or your care provider's radar if it shows up in this urine screen. So then really important thing to note here is you don't often give consent for it to be tested. 
So it just, if you do the wee test, then it comes up. Um, it's not just vaginal swabs. It is urine samples that it can come up into. So just know that. Yes. And the other way it comes up, and this is what's happened to me in the past, not me personally with my clients, is say someone has symptoms of thrush or something vaginal and Mm. we decide to get a swab to check what it is so that we can decide on a management plan, they will check and they'll tell you what is growing. And then GBS is one of the ones. If you're pregnant and you go for a low vaginal swab because you've got itching in your vagina or interesting discharge or some, some kind of change that's being investigated, they will often comment on your GBS status as well. So these are the ways that GBS can be screened for accidentally in pregnancy. So if you already had an idea that you didn't want to be screened for GBS, you may inadvertently discover if you're GBS positive or negative through some of these screening tests. And if you're negative, you might not necessarily be told. So if you've had a urine test and nothing's come up, often it'll just say, oh, the tests were clear. So if we look at the strategies for GBS screening, here in Australia where B and I are, there seems to be a bit of an ad ad hoc sort of do your own thing kind of strategy. Some hospitals do it one way, some states do it one way, depending different services do it some ways. But generally, Australia seems to be more like the US where we're doing what's called universal screening, where basically everyone gets a swab, a low vaginal swab between about 35 and 38 weeks. And the sole purpose of that swab is to discover if you're GBS positive or GBS negative. So the swab is often done on, you do it to yourself. Um, And so you'll be given the swab and given instructions on how typically it should be inserted into the vagina and then swept back through the perineum and it touches the anus to do it as per instructions. Um, And then you can bring it back. Other people, you know, I've not normally had this. I've had maybe one or two women in 15 years feel really uncomfortable and want it done to them. That is an option if that really grosses you out and you don't want to do it to yourself. It is an option. When we talk about a swab, it's a really long cotton bud. And then they grow it on a little petri dish. And it takes 24 to 48 hours to get a conclusive result. So it's a bit of a slow test. Um, You don't sort of dip it in something like a pregnancy test and you find out a few minutes later. It's a slow growing thing. That's in Australia. They kind of just have this bit of a blanket. Everybody gets swabbed. Everybody gets checked. In the UK, it's very, very different. And interestingly, and we'll talk about this more later, In the UK, they see no increase in uh, illness in babies or deaths in babies from GBS with the way they swab, which is risk-based. We'll talk about risk-based swabbing as we do here in Australia or the US where we swab everybody and treat most people. So in the UK, basically they'll have a risk criteria And if the woman falls into a criteria where she has a risk, they will offer her the opportunity to be swabbed. They don't just swab everybody. Risks include things like, you know, either a history of or preterm labor. So if a woman comes in in preterm labor, they might say, look, let's do a GBS swab, find out if you're GBS positive. The reason for that is because infection is often a cause for preterm labor. So they're trying to find out, A, what's causing the preterm birth. And then the other thing is preterm babies are basically at more risk of every kind of infection Mm. and every kind of illness. So if they can treat 
the woman with for GBS, potentially that baby's at less risk. But we'll, again, we'll talk about the stats on if we use antibiotics, does that change anything? Mm. Uh, if your waters break before you go into labour, really at any gestation, and it's been longer than 24 hours, checking for GBS can help prevent infection going upwards to the woman and actually giving her a uterine infection and potentially also for the baby. So that's another risk factor that might be a trigger to have the swab to find out if you're GBS positive. So those are a few things. And so sometimes it can be risk-based treatment too. So it can be a risk-based approach to screening, meaning um, the screening done in pregnancy, but also if you come into labour, risk-based screening whilst you're in labor and so things like that will be um like an odor of of the amniotic fluid worried about infection there if your temperature increases thing things like that anything that that there's a risk-based approach it's basically there's a set of these things if these things happen then we will screen and or treat right instead of doing every single person they just responding to actual risk factors. So those are the two ways of swabbing. And so if you're here in Australia, it's very likely that when you hit your third trimester, at some point, usually from 35-ish weeks, uh, your care provider will start talking to you about the GBS swab. If we talk, so, and then other people were asking me on social media, what's the risk of having the swab? There's actually not a particular risk to being swabbed. So there's no danger to having the actual test so meaning like, you know, oh, um, could it break your waters or could right. it give you an infection, something like that. There's yeah. no risk to actually putting the cotton bud swab into your vagina and having it test. It's what happens with the result and what the result can mean for you. So I just want to um, back it up here a little bit and explain why we do it at around 36 weeks and why it's done towards the end of pregnancy. And that is because it's a transient bacteria. So that means that sometimes it is there and sometimes it is not. And so typically, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Mel, but this has been my understanding for the last 15 years, is that we do it around 36 weeks thinking that the the bacteria typically, that we believe that it kind of, its lifespan is around that five weeks. And so if we do it at 36 weeks then, and we're positive then, then the idea is that it will typically cover us if we birth up until around 41 weeks. The issue with that is if you test and you're positive, you can be negative at birth. Mm-hmm. And if we test and you're negative, you can be positive at birth, meaning well, that's on that actually. So there yeah, was cool. research done on, so there, this particular research was done on women who were swabbed between 35 and 37 weeks. Mm-hmm. And of the women who were GBS positive at the time, then they're all swabbed again at birth. So mm-hmm. at the time of labor if they had 100% positive women only 70% of them were still positive at the time of birth and 30% were no longer positive so it is definitely a transient bacteria and the swab is actually pretty accurate so if you get the swab done and it says you've got gbs you really you do have gbs it's not like it's false positive is low so yeah. false positive means it's giving you a positive when you actually don't have it the the reason it's important to also know that it's transient apart from the fact that you could be tested it in pregnancy and not be 
um, and be positive at 37 weeks but not be positive at birth is also when we look at those other tests that can come back throughout our pregnancy that show that we're GBS positive because some places and or care providers have the mantra of once positive, always positive. So you, even if you get tested at 36 weeks and you're negative, if you've had a positive GBS screen or test throughout your pregnancy, then they treat you as GBS positive. So it's really important to know what your care provider and or place that you're choosing to birth at does around that. And I've seen practitioners assume Mm. that women are positive if they were GBS positive in their previous pregnancy. Yeah, I've seen that too. They will actually just assume that you're positive also for this pregnancy. So two-thirds of women, are only two-thirds of women are still positive at the time of giving birth. So one third are no longer positive at birth. So that gives you some indication of the transient nature of GBS. So we Mm. can't assume that if you had GBS last time, that you have GBS this time. Evidence-based birth did a great, has a great article on this, as does um, the Ontario midwives in Canada. They have a really great leaf. And so I guess everyone got really interested in GBS screening because there is a risk that if you have GBS, that your baby can get a GBS infection after birth in the first seven days. Early onset GBS infection is what we're talking about. So that was the problem that people identified that babies get sick, can get sick from GBS getting into their, the typical presentations are um, lung infections. So a kind of pneumonia, sepsis, which is kind of a full body blood infection and meningitis, which is Uh, in the brain and spinal fluid. Those are the three main manifestations of a GBS infection in a baby. So super frightening, always definitely need treatment. If your baby is sick with GBS, definitely, definitely treat with antibiotics. Like it's a bacteria. We We can solve that problem. You know, things like viruses, a bit more tricky, but we've got antibiotics for GBS infections. And this is where this topic becomes really emotional and people do get really upset and triggered and angry by it because if you have seen a baby who has GBS infection, they get sick, they get proper sick. So a lot of people come at this argument very passionately, especially if they've cared for sick babies, wanting the routine testing, wanting the routine um, antibiotics in labour because of that. We're not here to tell you what decision to make. We're here to give you the evidence and, and for you to make a decision that's right for you and your family but just to give you a bit of background on why there can be so much heat around this it's because we're talking about newborns and we're talking about them getting sick it's just that the way it's often said to us is again with fear and not the evidence so we're going to give you the stats today on what the actual risk is of baby getting sick yeah totally so that yeah so that's what starts all this idea of let's screen everybody for gbs because when gbs gets in the wrong place like a baby's lungs meninges into its blood it causes infection because it's in the wrong place. So let's have a look at how many babies actually will get sick with GBS. All right, I've got stats here. So one baby in 2,000 pregnancies will get sick with a GBS infection. 70% of those will fully recover with treatment. 20% will recover with disability. So this can be more for the babies who potentially suffered really high fevers or had the meningitis. Is that including only full-term babies or is it preterm as well? All babies, every single baby, any risk level, preterm, 
full term, yeah. high risk, low risk. This is every pre- every single pregnancy. So they got yeah. these stats by looking, and it, this is not just GBS positive women either. This is if you look at two thousand pregnancies, one mm-hmm. baby will get sick with GBS, regardless of how many of them were positive or negative. And then, so when you sift all of that out in terms of death rates, babies dying from a GBS infection of all pregnancies you'd have to have 17,000 pregnant women. One of those babies will die from a GBS infection. So I've got some UK stats here. And these UK stats are from when basically there was no universal or no guided management of GBS. They looked at 573,408 full-term pregnancies. Just a couple. Yeah. So over half a million over half a million pregnant women at full term. Gotta love the UK. I know. Access to numbers. <laughs> don't mess around. There was 205 early onset GBS infections. Okay, so hang on. I'm doing, I've got my calculator out now. 205 divided by what? So 573,000. Yep. 448. 205 divided by 574,408, was it? 573448 equals 0.003. And if I times that by 100, that'll give it. Yes, you have to times it by 100 to get a percentage. percentage. So 0.04% of babies, of all babies, will get an early onset GBS infection. Which was the same as your other stats because I did the maths on that and that was 0.05. Yep. So, and that roughly works out to one in 17,000 by the looks of it. Also, Mm -hmm. if you go by the other stats. Now, of the 203, sorry, 205 babies who had the infection, 13 of them died. That's the... That's the stats. So in that one year in the UK of over half a million births, there was 13 babies who died of a GBS infection. So those are the numbers. And so what they've worked out, I did read one study, 98 point, sorry, 99.85% of babies born to women who carry GBS will be unaffected by death or disability. 99.85% of babies born to women who carry GBS will be unaffected by death or disability. And what women need to decide now is how they feel about those numbers and if they're motivating enough to firstly get the GBS swab because there's nothing wrong with getting the GBS swab and finding out if you are GBS positive or negative. The decision comes is now what kind of treatment would you like to accept for that if you want to accept any treatment. So the assumption from a hospital, if you are going through just routine hospital care, this is very generalized. I know that some services will be different. They will want you to have the swab. And if you're GBS positive, they'll ask you to come in during labor, potentially slightly earlier, because if you apply the treatment protocol correctly, antibiotics needs to be administered four hours before the baby's born. So they may say to you, you're GBS positive, so come in a little bit earlier, or they might not mention that. But so when they had a look at this protocol of timing, so they have done a little bit of study on the timing of the antibiotics, and they did find that antibiotics does reduce colonization 
in 90% of babies. So you know how I talked about at the beginning that if a woman is colonized with GBS and her baby's born, half of those babies will be also colonized with GBS. Antibiotics reduces colonization by 90%, but it has to be given. It must be given for at least four hours prior to birth. If you give it closer than four hours, they showed a reduction in effectiveness by 50% of the antibiotics. So I remember being a student and seeing this baby crowning, so nearly born, you could see the baby head. Hmm. The midwife was frantically trying to get a cannula in to administer antibiotics. Mm -hmm. This woman Mm -hmm. was GPS positive and she was telling the woman to not push because she had to give her antibiotics for GBS. I feel like we've been at the same birth smell. Oh, my gosh. I know sometimes it doesn't make sense. A lot of the time it doesn't make sense when you're the person watching. I know. So, but that's about colonisation. But guess what? They haven't found. They found that although antibiotics reduce colonisation, it doesn't reduce the stats on illness or death. So fun times, I can't explain that, but that's what the research says. Also, another thing about the swabbing, one study found that the number of Mel's women... getting so hot I from talking about all this research. She's getting so turned on by it. She has to take a jumper off. I'm just like taking a moment to sit there with that evidence. Like I feel like we needed like a really dramatic pause for people to take that in. I know it's been a lot of numbers. We'll try and summarise it for you, but I think you're getting the gist of this in your head as we go along. It's a big topic with a lot of research and numbers on it, but it has to be because people are not going to like that we're talking about this, right? This is I've I've had professional complaints about me talking to Mm -hmm. people about GBS when it's purely evidence-based. So, yeah, it's why we're getting all hot and sweaty in here of GBS. (laughs) So B just watched me take my jumper off on screen. I'm wearing a singlet. I am getting hot and sweaty. Basically, there's a lot of wriggle room. So you've got a decision to make about whether or not you want to be swapped. Do you even want you can say no to, right? So many women have no idea. You can say no, and we're we're gonna probably say this in every single episode. It is your body, it's your baby, it's your choice. Often the words that are used around these types of procedures don't encourage choice, right? So we don't know that we can say no. They say, here you go, here's a swab, we just do it at 36 weeks, go and do it now and give it back to me. You know, there's not a lot of information around it. And I'm I'm generalizing there because I would talk for like an hour on it before someone got a swab so that they could make and I would say then come back. And if you want to do it, we'll do it. Like I always gave people time. So please know you can say no to anything. You can also say I need some more time. So you can say yes, no, please I need some more time. And I guess another thing to mention here is not even please, just I need more time. Yes. Well that some services are very coercive and abusive and will say things to women like, if you don't have this swab, I'm going to report you to family services or docs here in Australia. The other thing I've seen Your happen, baby may die. Your ba- because, you, yes, they'll say if you don't have this, your baby could die. Yes, it's very possible that your baby could die. One in 17,000 babies do die of GBS. That's the reason. So 16,999 don't. Just be real. If any care provider ever says to you, your baby may die, be really just aware that that's been said. And you can always say, okay, can you give me more information on that? Can you give me the statistics around what the chance is that my baby may die? When that is said to us, it can feel really triggering. And that's often where we make fear-based decisions, not 
evidence-informed decisions that are that feel right for us. They're not that full body yes. They're just the we've been triggered, so we feel scared, so we're going to do as we're told. So coming back to that, oh, okay, this has just been said to me. What do I need to do? Well, I need to ask for more information and maybe more time. And whenever that's said to you around anything, I just think it's a, it's a massive red flag for me because you're not getting true, compassionate, evidence-informed care. You're right. getting scare tactics. And the other thing that can happen to women is sometimes if you don't submit to the tests that your service is recommending, and this is a, this can happen a lot with very boutique services like public home birth programs, uh, continuity oh, okay. care, midwifery programs, where actually they're being so heavily watched that if women don't comply to the very strict rules of being on that program, they can boot women off. And so sometimes women are at risk if they decline a test and it's incredibly coercive but it's the reality is if they decline a test they might not actually be able to use that service so i've heard stories of women being on these programs and submitting to the testing and as you said it's a self swab so you go on into the bathroom to do wow. your swab but Don't i guess give away the secrets no no this is you're about, i know what you're about to do i'm doing <laughs> it Don't- don't expose it. Just leave it up to the imagination. Well, it doesn't matter. No, women need to know this, B. Okay, here's my top. Okay. This is what I've heard. I don't recommend it, obviously. I'm not allowed to recommend such things. But I've heard stories of women who go into the bathroom and just because the swab would come out of a container and then you put it in another container. So then you just bypass your vagina. You don't, it doesn't have to go into your vagina. And, and then they just send it off to be tested, unaware that the woman didn't actually do the swab. So don't swab a wall or a toilet or anything because you'll that'll grow something funky. But I'm just saying what I've heard is for women who know that if they don't do this test, they're going to get removed from their service that they've been in as a result of declining this test. There are ways around it because they do trust that you've done the test. That's all I need. Neither of us are recommending this because we really value our ARPA registration and want to call ourselves midwives. I've worked in two of the 16 models and that GBS screening was not a criteria to have a home birth. So I do just want to say that Um, I've worked in two very epic models and that was not. And the majority of people I cared for did decline tests. And it was always really interesting, actually, because every person I cared for that had a publicly funded home birth I'm, I'm going to say like 98% of them declined the test because we can't, we couldn't give antibiotics at home no, either. No. So like if they were positive, then we can't actually treat them. So th- th- some women still want to be treated and, and the women I cared for in that model did a lot around probiotics, which we'll talk about in a, in a minute yeah. to, to ensure that test was negative. But yes, I, I too have heard of women that have done that, but it's not been women that have ever that I've ever cared for because, I mean, it's coercion. If you're going to kick, get kicked off, women are clever. They'll, You know, I remember, and this, this is getting sidetracked now and you know that I do this, so you're just going to have to put up with it. Um, but when I was in the Solomon Islands, if you had had two caesareans, it was your tubes were tied in that second caesarean without consent. Um, actually, the husband's consent or the father's consent, if the husband wasn't around, was sought after. And so you would have your tubes tied. And I remember this woman did these incredible things to be able to get around it. And she, <laughs> there was a drought at the time. And so she 
said that she was going off to find water and she <laughs> went off to this faraway island where there was a doctor that didn't do the tubes tying procedure and it just so happened that she was around the time where she gave birth and then so when she went to get water she had a baby and didn't get a tubes tied and then there was the opposite where women had to have their father or their husband's consent to be able to have their tubes tied so just I, the strength of women we are so clever we're so good at doing what we need to do Mm. So, so far we've covered that there's two types of screening options. You can either have universal or risk-based. Here in Australia, it's universal. You can also accidentally be swabbed or tested for GBS in your urine or any regular vaginal swab that you have for your pregnancy. And the reason that we're swabbing is because some babies do get sick. One in 2,000 get sick, one in 17,000 die from a GBS infection. So then when you think about those numbers, uh, I guess the question that gets asked is, if all of this can save just one life, wouldn't that actually be worth it? Wouldn't it be worth screening all these people and finding out who's got GBS if we can prevent one baby from dying? So we'll take this chance now to talk about the treatment that's offered to women who are GBS positive in pregnancy. So if you present to your facility, hospital, wherever you're giving birth, or if you're having a home birth, it might it'll be different. But if you're GBS positive, you'll be offered an IV cannula, which stays in your arm through the duration of your labor. And every four hours, you'll be given IV antibiotics through that cannula. So that's straight into your blood. And the thought behind this is that if GBS is a bacteria and we can, we can reduce the numbers, then we can reduce the infections on babies. So the numbers then on treating, so we need to give, this is um, UK stats, but you know, we can, this is what we've got. You need to give 1,191 women antibiotics in labor to prevent one case of GBS infection. You need to swab 5,704 women in order to get the result that's going to lead to one less baby getting GBS infection. So the numbers needed to treat is quite large. So we need to unnecessarily give 1,191 women antibiotics to prevent one baby from getting sick. So why wouldn't we do that? What's the issue with giving, you know, 20% of the population antibiotics during labour? There's a few issues, I suppose. Firstly, in order to be effective, they need to be done four hours prior to the birth. So you actually need to be in the hospital for a length of time. And one of the things that we know about birth is that the later you go to hospital, the less intervention you're going to have and the higher your rates are of having a vaginal birth with less medical intervention or interruption in your birth process. So women are routinely told by midwives, only come in when you're in established, strong, regular labour, don't come in too early. So the issue is, is if we really do want to treat GBS with the protocol that does reduce colonisation, then you need to go into hospital earlier. And we know that's problematic already. Then antibiotics are an amazing invention. But the issue is, is that we're gradually and steadily building antibiotic resistant bacteria. 
So there's a time limit on how long us as a civilization can continue to use antibiotics in a way that they're going to actually be effective because we are breeding superbugs and bugs that will not be killed by antibiotics. And so, this is giving them as a prophylaxis, not as a treatment. Right. And that's a really important thing to understand here. So we are giving antibiotics to prevent sickness. We're not using them to treat sickness. So 1,174 women, was it, uh, have to receive antibiotics in order to prevent one baby from dying, was it, dying so or sickness? One case, one case of sickness. So One case of sickness. Right, So, because um, only one in 17,000 will actually die. Yeah. So that's the issue is that the overuse of antibiotics doesn't you know actually encourages the growth of antibiotic resistant bugs now i'm not saying if you're sick if you go into your labor you know you're gbs positive you've got a fever yourself your waters have been broken for longer than 24 hours and your baby's showing old like alterations in their heart rate that's a really good reason mm -hmm. to suspect mm -hmm. an infection and to accept antibiotics that's when we need antibiotics for treating sickness the issue with GBS is that we're treating well, healthy women and well, healthy babies with a medication that already has a short shelf life in the grand scheme of our humanity and our, you know, our lives because there's antibiotic resistance. But also when you give somebody antibiotics, it wipes out a percentage of that good bacteria and the the bacteria that we need for our bodies to function properly. And we will have a whole episode on the microbiome because it is linked to things like immune system, brain function, childhood development, allergies, the epigenetic function of our bodies. Like it's really deep. So we're not going to go too far into the microbiome except to say, do you want to start the life of your, in your parenting and the life of your baby through a vaginal canal that's had an antibiotic treatment potentially unnecessarily because that's your baby's first colonizing event. That's where they start to build their microbiome is what they collect from the vaginal passageway as they're born. So the big argument, and I'll put all these papers in the folder for those who are on the mailing list, the big argument that the UK came up with for not doing these routine swabs and routine antibiotics for anybody is they have serious concerns about the impact on women's and babies' microbiome because of this overuse of antibiotics. So we need to know what is it doing to us as a population when you're giving one-fifth of all humans antibiotics at the point of birth. So now it's up to women then and their families. So this is the feedback that, you know, that some people kindly offered on Instagram is, well, that's no comfort to the baby who died or the family who lost their baby. Or, you know, of course, it's no, absolutely no comfort. Of course, it's not because it's a terrible situation. And caring for a baby who's sick in, in neonatal intensive care is just a horrific experience. I know I've witnessed it intimately with family members. I know. What we're saying is, is will that uh, do those numbers make you want to get a GBS test and antibiotics? If you've heard those stats today and you think, I absolutely want to get a swab and I absolutely want to get antibiotics, totally fine. 
because you've got the information now. But then you might also think those numbers don't feel frightening enough for me. Those numbers don't feel frightening enough for me to feel like I need to get a GBS swab and be treated by antibiotics. So that's completely your choice. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just saying this is the info. The thing here that also we haven't mentioned yet is what can happen if your waters break, right? So if you get screamed and you're GBS positive and your waters break before you go into labour or your waters break and then you start to get some contractions, some niggles there, you will more than likely be induced because you're GBS positive. That is typically what happens in the, in the hospital system is if you're GBS positive, your waters break, then you get induced. And so there's a lot of birth debriefs that I do, women are like, I didn't know that that was going to happen. I rang them because they told me to ring, my waters are broken. And then they said, you're GBS positive, come in. And then all of a sudden I'm hooked up to a drip and I've had, and I'm having an induction. So again, there's lots of choice here. And so it's about, mapping it and going what do I want here what is the right choice for me and so some women who are GBS positive will decline that induction until they reach a certain amount of hours or they will say I'm more than happy to have the antibiotics now that my waters have broken but I'm going to decline the induction and wait for spontaneous labor to start and yeah again depending on your care provider and the service so but be aware and you can ask um, your care provider what their policy is and hospitals can print off the policy and that has all of that detail. You know, if this, then this happens. Yeah. So not only is there a risk to the microbiome of both the woman and the baby, there's also a very, very small risk. This is small and this is why we don't do antibiotics at home basically because as B, you were saying, um, if a client of mine is GBS positive, has decided to have the swab, I do let them know that if you're GBS positive, we don't do IV antibiotics at home because there's a very small risk of maternal anaphylaxis. So a severe reaction to the antibiotics where you get anaphylactic and literally your throat starts to close up, you know, so that's small risk. We already spoke about uh, antibiotic resistance and the impact on the microbiome, but there's also some research about how if you wipe out part of the microbiome with antibiotics and you create this dysbiosis and imbalance, then you open the body up to what we call opportunistic colonization by a pathogenic, like a, a bad bug, essentially, like E. coli, um, an overgrowth of things like candida, which is thrush, and women can get it on their nipples and the baby then gets thrush and all these things. So it's a horrible experience to experience thrush, especially if you didn't need to because you have antibiotics as a preventative rather than actual treatment. So those are some of the risks of having antibiotics. There's also the, you know, the potential risks of having a cannula. Again, that's just isolated to the cannula. But it contributes to this over-medicalization of childbirth, which really is midwives. And from the literature, we're trying to move away from medicalizing childbirth so heavily. Now, so we, yeah, so we see really seeing that flow and effect in that new motherhood stage and the breastfeeding stage, which then has emotional and physical flow and effects. And it's often these kind of things that aren't discussed. Totally. So me and B are talking a lot about stats and all these kinds of things, but that the research on this, and this is based on the Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews. So as we heard in episode four, Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews is considered the most scientific publication. 
they have concluded that GBS swabbing, screening, universal GBS screening of everybody, it doesn't have enough evidence to support its use. The other thing they have found is that they cannot recommend routine antibiotic uh, administration to every single GBS positive woman because the level of evidence is very, very poor on its effectiveness. So, Boom. yes. So I love Cochrane. I'd so sorry, have an affair yeah. with Cochrane if Cochrane was a person. It's yeah. just the best evidence. And if you are a person that's not medical, Cochrane always has a... Um, oh, what do they call it? Author's um, interpretation or like plain text summary, plain text summary that is so easy to understand. Like it puts it into like eight-year-old readings. Yes, because what Cochrane does is it pulls all the studies and looks at all the stats and decides whether or not the research is good enough quality to make conclusions. So they basically said it looks like maybe antibiotics can reduce colonization and maybe sickness of babies. But we can't really tell because the studies are small and they're not very good quality. So at the moment, Cochrane has not been able to confidently recommend the use of antibiotics for the problem of GBS infections. And it also doesn't have enough research and information to recommend that everybody get a GBS swab. Certainly a risk-based approach seems to be an option where you actually just look at the individual and decide if a swab is appropriate for them. Which should be how we provide maternity care always an individualized approach and everything that I think what you're going to get out of this podcast is basically everything that is routinely done across the board actually isn't well I shouldn't say everything but so much you know routine vaginal examinations continuous CT and monitoring on well women you know routine GBS screening all this stuff that we just do and we don't often think about and we don't question it we just have it done to us there isn't the evidence when you dig deep to support it and that's what we're here you know we're saying we're rebellious but we're not we're actually just really nerdy evidence-based midwives that are like what the f- is going on see I stopped myself there I'm so proud of you myself but what is actually going on how do we have this evidence and why why is it so different to the practice and what women are receiving exactly and we're, not we're saying well we're saying well women if you are well, a woman that's turned up with an infection yes have all the stuff that stuff yeah. is amazing get it go yeah. for it you know this is what we love modern medicine but if you are well and you're just saying yes sir no sir three antibiotics in my veins sir mm-mm. <laughs> And the other thing that people are asking too is, well, what if I decline all of that and my baby does get sick with GBS? Well, we saw the stats, one in 2000 will. As I said, it's a bacteria, so the baby would be treated with antibiotics and only approximately, if you didn't know you had GBS or you just declined the testing or declined the antibiotics and your baby still gets gets unwell, you can, they can be treated with antibiotics. So this is the difference between prophylactic antibiotics, meaning using them in terms to prevent something, as opposed to using them for treatment. So we're yet to be able to fully work out how, if even if mm. antibiotics is the pro, is the solution to the problem of GBS. There's no doubt there's a problem of GBS because one in two thousand babies get sick, and one in seventeen thousand babies die. So it's a problem that needs attention. The problem is is that we've directed out I'm sure if the prophylactic so the preventative yeah. antibiotics are going to prevent that yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. The other problem yeah. now is, and this is what Co- Cochrane identified, was that because we've gone so far down the antibiotic rabbit hole and this has become standard treatment, is that we can no longer ethically study any other way of managing GBS because it's considered withholding treatment and that would never get through an ethics committee. So there is some thought that actually the opportunity to study alternative management of GBS in, of GBS colonised women is gone. And so there's a concern amongst the scientific society that we actually will never be able to explore other options for GBS because the use of antibiotics has become so accepted as a treatment, even though it's not evidence-based. All right. So the other thing we haven't talked about yet, which I am actually really passionate about about, is there is some research. So um, we've got here, we'll pop it up in the show notes, but um, there was a study done by Ho et al. in 2016 that concluded that oral probiotics containing L, and I'm not going to say these right, people are going to like shrivel up as they hear me say them, Raminosis GR1 and L Rutiri RC14 good bacteria good bacteria could reduce the vaginal and rectal GBS colonization rate in pregnant women so there is research that shows taking probiotics in pregnancy can reduce them it can reduce the colonization so it's not looking at the infection it's looking at colonization and you're listening to this and you're pregnant and you're like what can I do this is something both Mel and I highly recommend there isn't a huge amount I mean that was a randomized control trial um, which is our highest form of evidence in terms of scientific evidence around this Um, so it is it it was a it's a good study but um, and there are others out there but really if if there's something you want to do to reduce your risk of colonization probiotics in pregnancy The other thing that comes up for women is if you've got GBS in your urine, you can't, that can be a red flag for your care provider. Now, what's that about? So there's basically two types of urinary tract infections, and there's those that are asymptomatic. So you have a bacteria in your urine, but you don't have any symptoms of a urinary tract infection, in which case you don't have an infection, you've just got colonization. And then there's If you've got an actual UTI and then you get your urine checked and they grow the bacteria that's in your urine and then they tell you then that your urinary tract infection is a result of GBS, what do you do about that? And so there is actually a few studies on this and I will put them in the folder as well for you to have a look at. So basically when they check you for a urinary tract infection or they check your urine, they check how many parts per million or per 10,000, I think, for urine. Anyway, I'm not sure of the exact details, but they check how many parts of your urine equate to this particular bacteria. Bee's looking at me. She's going, you're doing really bad No, that is not what I was thinking at all. I was thinking how sexy it is to think about my urine in different parts. Different parts. million parts or 10,000 parts. How do I want to think about it? Anyway. So then... You can either have a low concentration of bacteria or a high concentration of bacteria, which is probably what I was trying to say. And there's been studies that have been done to check if a high concentration of GBS bacteria in your urine correlates to also having a high GBS count in your vagina. And so the current research suggests that a high count in your urine 
can also indicate that there's a high count in your vagina. So they will immediately just assume that if you've got a high count of GBS in your urine, that you also have a high count in your vagina and will seek to offer treatment with antibiotics. Now, if you do actually have a symptomatic urinary tract infection, I would highly recommend getting some kind of treatment for that because what they've found is for women who've got GBS in their urine, just like any other urinary tract infection, it can put you at risk of preterm birth. However you want to treat it naturally with antibiotics or however you want to do it, I've had clients with high GBS in their urine with also symptoms who've declined antibiotics and used a range of other alternative therapies to manage that. That's obviously something that those women have pursued and used themselves. So for women who are wondering why if I have GBS in my urine, have I just been assumed to have GBS in my vagina? It's because there there has been a noted correlation. However, if there's low amounts in your urine, it, the, the correlation is a lot less. So the, it's less accurate if you've got low GBS in your urine to assume that you've also got it in your vagina. So absolutely, yes, the question I've had was, should I treat GBS if it's in my urine? Personally, if it's asymptomatic and you only found the GPS because you accidentally found it when you were doing a routine urine test, then I don't think that you need antibiotics because at any one time, our body is working on getting rid of bacteria from places it shouldn't be. And the only time that your body's not coping with that process is when it's obviously sick. So if you have a UTI, your body's not been able to get on top of that infection and it's struggling and it needs telling you it needs help. So get help, of course, if you have symptoms. But if you don't have symptoms, you've got a whole lot of other options for managing GBS in your urine. Mm. Bang. I think we're done. I think that's yeah. epic. Magic. Well, thanks, everybody. That's it for our GBS episode this week. We will see you again next week. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, I was thinking that when um when we were talking, Viva. Yeah. So Hazel was a home birth midwife. Her thesis is in home birth VBAC, and she's mm-hmm. just written a book. It'll be amazing. And I wondered if we could have her on and potentially offer a few freebies of her. I actually, are you friends with her? Yes, very good friend. We actually worked together at Western Sydney Uni. Um, so I can ask her if she'd be willing to be interviewed. Mm. I'll see if she's available for Tuesday. Yeah. Um, and we could do VBAC because, and that's yeah. kind of an early thing because we need to talk about VBAC planning and choosing yeah. the right care provider and all yeah. that kind of stuff because that yeah. is really closely linked to success, VBAC rate successes. Yeah. Epic. Do that. I'll contact her. Awesome. awesome. Okay. Yeah, well done, you. darling. Bye. You did great. You did so well with all that research. That was amazing. Ooh.